Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Columbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. Hey, really glad you're with us for the Wednesday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. Your stool awaits, and we have good, bad, and crazy martinis for you today. And Jim, the first one I think actually has kind of has elements of all three. Uh, it's officially a, a good martini, and let's face it, the odds of us getting a lot of good martinis from HHS Secretary Javier Becerra are pretty remote. So anything that even wanders into that general neighborhood, we're probably going to chalk up as a good martini. But no, uh, Secretary Becerra told an annual ministerial meeting of the World Health Organization yesterday, and you talk about this at length in the uh, Morning Jolt, that international experts should be given, quote, the independence to fully assess the source of the virus and early days of the outbreak. Uh, Some folks are fuming because it still looks like the Biden administration is passing this off to the quote-unquote international community, and they still think the WHO perhaps is uh, competent or uh, honest enough to actually get to the bottom of this, which uh, I think we would agree at this point that they're not. But what we're seeing here, Jim, is a pretty strong movement to at least consideration, if not uh, almost uh, embracing of the idea that there may have been a leak from uh, one of the labs in Wuhan that started the whole coronavirus pandemic. Uh, As time has gone on, the idea of the wet market uh, seems to have lost uh, a lot of steam. Uh, And now you've got uh, Fauci saying he's not ruling it out. He's always kind of couching things in in, uh, in vague language like that. But now you've got Becerra doing it. As you point out in the jolt, you've got a lot of journalists who, uh, you know, a few months ago would have told you you were crazy and a conspiracy theorist. And in your particular case, they probably did. Jonathan Chait, uh, Matt Iglesias, Glenn Kessler, Zachary Wolf. Uh, and now suddenly this idea has uh, has more legs. And so uh, that's the crazy part, I think, uh, is, is that all of a sudden a lot of people are giving this credibility, even though there hasn't been any sort of bombshell public report here. So how do you reconcile all this and how significant is Becerra's comment? By itself, you, you could people, listeners of this podcast could legitimately say, Jim and Greg never cared that much about what Javier Becerra thought before. Why do they care now? And that's true enough as far as it goes, but this is effectively U.S. government policy. And Becerra saying this to the World Health Organization basically is saying, we believe this question is still unresolved. We, and, and kind of, you know, nudging the World Health Organization that they don't have faith in how the the investigation has gone so far because China has not turned over some of the raw data that the World Health Organization requested, and they had all kinds of restrictions and monitoring of them when they went to Wuhan earlier this year. There's a strategy in the Biden administration's mindset that if we are nicer to the World Health Organization, President Trump famously announced that the U.S. would be withdrawing from it, uh, that somehow the World Health Organization will get their acts together and do a better and more thorough investigation and look seriously at the possibility that the outbreak of a severe respiratory illness that is a that is, you know resembles coronaviruses found in bats could have come from one of the two laboratories in that city that was researching coronaviruses found in bats. Occam's razor has been pointing at this thing for the from the very beginning. Now I think what I don't quite get is what why the Biden administration thinks the World Health Organization that has been by and large bowing and scraping to China as if they were, I don't know, John Cena or something, um, <laughs> or as if they were LeBron James or, or something like that. 
uh, that basically what's going to change? What is going to make the World Health Organization you know, say, all right, that's it, enough of this nonsense, Beijing. We're doing a full investigation or else we'll write a strongly worded letter. <laughs> I, don't, I don't even know what leverage the World Health Organization would have over this. I, I think if you're going to have a real investigation, it can't happen at the World Health Organization. I don't want to say the whole organization is too compromised or you just want to say that they're too slow moving, they're too... Uh, I think the World Health Organization just prioritizes happy talk and consensus too much. And Beijing just knows how to press their buttons and to get, you know, to make them back down and, uh, you know, try to agree to half a loaf and agree to these cockamamie theories that it came from imported seafood and and nonsense like that. Um, The world, I don't think the World Health Organization is going to do it. I think the, you know, it's going to have to be led by the U.S., uh, and probably from the U.S. intelligence community, there have been some concerning reports that Biden administration shut down a State Department effort investigation. Uh, they're moving in the wrong direction. They basically, if we, if, we want, if we want this job done right, we have to do this ourselves. But I'll make one observation. You see this comment from Becerra. You see this comment from uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci. You see this comment from the 18 uh, scientists who wrote to Science Magazine, the Washington Post editorial board, and this sudden, intense, whiplash-inducing change in the conventional wisdom around this. One of my all-time favorite pieces, and one I think is worth keeping in mind as we examine news events going forth. Mickey Kaus, over, who used to write Kaus Files, used to be at Slate, I think he's now independent, um, had this concept he called undernews. And what it was was this idea, he pointed to John Edwards' affairs as a good example of this, some of the Jeffrey Epstein stuff. Um, the idea of when you start seeing change, your tones and news coverage change, but you can't tell why. And the Mickey Cows idea is that there is there are these rumors, there are these ideas, things that are known but that are not yet publicly known, and that various people start changing their positions and hedging the bets they've taken because they know that at some point this information is going to come out. It's almost like news hot take insider trading, right? The idea that, you know, who knows, maybe Fauci or Javier Becerra or somebody else in either the U.S. government or in some sort of international health organization or some other, somebody out there knows there's another shoe that's about to drop. I don't know if that's the case. I don't like betting on this sort of thing. We, we have had a few pieces of information in the past uh, couple of days, couple of weeks, couple of months that have complicated things. I think the Wall Street Journal reporting that uh, three uh, folks at the Wuhan Institute of Virology were hospitalized in November 2019. Now, the argument from the Chinese government is, well, they didn't have COVID-19. Are you sure? Because I got to tell you, Chinese government, you've been known to lie a lot. And so it's kind of hard to just take this on this. Now, it sounds like people who work in virology labs uh, get sick all the time, which is a little creepy, a little unnerving to think that they could always have this. And they don't know whether what sickened them and put them in the hospital was COVID-19 or was what they called a you know, regular seasonal illness. Usually when you think of winter, you're thinking of the flu. Greg, I looked it up. People, normal, healthy adult human beings do not generally end up in the hospital because of the flu. People who are immunocompromised might, the elderly might, but if you think about it, it'd be really unusual to have somebody who is very elderly or have somebody who has immunocompromised working in a virology lab. I think if you don't have a fully functional immune system, you probably don't want to spend your days handling dangerous pathogens and bacteria and, uh, and viruses and stuff like that. And the idea of three of them, 
all needing hospitalization at the same time, right before the pandemic broke out. Boy, that's a really remarkable coincidence. Now, could it be something besides COVID-19? Sure. Could it be that it was just a, you know, like if it was the flu that put him in the hospital, man, that's a really bad flu to get three healthy adults hospitalized in a short period of time, but it's possible. But bit by bit, the circumstantial evidence keeps adding up here. And I do wonder when you see Becerra taking this line and you see this sudden abandonment of this of the tone of, oh, this is a debunked conspiracy theory and only nut jobs like Donald Trump and Tom Cotton and Ted Cruz are doing this kind of stuff. Um, it's a pretty spectacular reversal of the thinking on this. And I cannot help get the feeling that maybe there's some other shoe that's going to drop on this front. Yeah, you'd certainly think so, because don't forget, not only were we uh, told that uh, the possibility of a lab leak was insane. I mean, people were pilloried publicly for even reminding us that the virus started in China. <laughs> the pandemic started in China. That made you a yeah, yeah. xenophobe and a there, racist. There's never been a good explanation of why Wuhan flu is a racist and xenophobic term that if you use it, you should be driven out of public life. But it's perfectly okay to refer to the Brazilian variant, the South African variant, the UK variant. Yes. You know, all, all, for some of the variants, it's perfectly okay. You know, you know, and here's the thing. Let's say a new variant shows up in like Shanghai. Are we allowed to call that one the Shanghai variant or is that one racist and xenophobic too? There's no consistency here. Jim, we will find out. I mean, we've uh, kind of assumed that the Biden administration would be pretty soft on China. So for them to drop the hammer on something like this uh, would be pretty significant. But uh, if the evidence does pile up and becomes public that uh, it was, in fact, a lab leak and uh, all the denials and all the other rhetoric over the past year plus uh, has uh, only been to serve as a distraction and a lie. Uh, the you-know-what is going to hit the fan. If you don't like the you-know-what that your cat is leaving behind, the Kitty Poo Club is the product for you. Kitty Poo Club takes care of the more unpleasant parts of cat ownership so you can get back to loving your furry friend. Greg, that is the finest transition we've ever had on this podcast. <laughs> Kitty Poo Club is a convenient all-in-one monthly litter box solution. Every month, Kitty Poo Club delivers an affordable, high-quality, recyclable litter box that is pre-filled with the litter of your choice. The boxes are leak-proof, eco-friendly, and have a fun design for every season. And when the month is up, you just recycle the box and Kitty Poo Club will automatically deliver a new one to you. No more changing used litter and no more cleaning the box. Now you can customize your order based on how many cats you have and choose from four different litter types. Kitty Poop Club also offers a no risk satisfaction guarantee and you can easily customize or cancel at any time. And right now, Kitty Poop Club is offering you 20% off your first order plus a free dome, free scoop, and free shipping when you set up auto ship by going to Kitty Poo club.com slash martini just go to kittypooclub.com slash martini and get that 20 percent off your first order plus a free dome scoop and free shipping when you set up auto ship that's kittypooclub.com slash martini all right jim let's move on to our bad martini now and let's stay in asia but move a little bit to the west uh, and over to afghanistan biden administration of course announcing that we're going to be out of there entirely by September 11th of this year, I think there was a report just yesterday that we're about 20% of the way out uh, totally, 20, 25%, somewhere in there. And now the Taliban is already talking smack. Jim, this is uh, from The Hill. Uh, the Taliban on Wednesday warned countries neighboring Afghanistan against 
hosting U.S. forces as the Pentagon looks for new locations to set up operations after a withdrawal from the nation. The U.S. is anticipated to fully withdraw its forces later this year, but observers have speculated that the military will set up shop elsewhere in the Middle East or South Asia to maintain a presence in the region. In a statement, the Taliban issued a clear warning that, quote, misfortunes and difficulties could befall countries that decide to host U.S. troops. Quote, foreign forces are the root cause of insecurity and war in the region and the greatest tragedy that everyone has witnessed in the last 20 years. Especially our afflicted people who have suffered and continue to suffer more than anyone else, we urge neighboring countries not to allow and grant anyone such a concession. Jim, I think we would argue strongly that they are the ones responsible for the misery over the last 20 years and certainly the misery uh, that we suffered uh, 20 years ago and, and beyond. Uh, this is not the rhetoric of an organization that is uh, planning to abide by uh, whatever terms are in place once the U.S. is gone. I think they uh, are pretty clearly have ambitions in, in their own borders, and it looks like beyond, too. Yeah, look, if you don't want U.S. forces invading your country, step one is don't host an Airbnb for terrorists who want to kill Americans. That's that's pretty straightforward right there. The uh, I, I think... I completely understand why so many Americans are exhausted uh, of Afghanistan. Notice I say not the war in Afghanistan. Because we haven't had a U.S. fatality since, uh, I want to say, late 2019. It was pre-pandemic. It's not a shooting war anymore. We can argue about whether it's worthwhile. We can argue about whether the size of a U.S. military presence that is necessary. And you can justifiably argue that one of the things have been relatively quiet over there, and the Taliban has not been trying to kill Americans, is disagreement for a long-term eventual U.S. withdrawal, but it still seems like a, I, I do see people who feel like their their rhetoric on Afghanistan hasn't been updated since about 2010. That having been said, what is the worst case scenario for us? Whether you're, you know, want to stay, whether you want to leave, the worst case scenario is that Taliban goes back to hosting, if not Al-Qaeda, some other extremist Islamist organization. And that extremist Islamist organization, concluding that we are the great Satan, launches attacks against Americans again. And we find ourselves right back to where we were on September 10th, 2001. Everybody, if we leave, everybody wants to make sure we never have to go back again. Now, right now, based on what we're seeing from the Taliban, does it look like they've learned anything? Does it look like they're changing their behavior? Does it look like they have changed their attitude and their policy and their cooperation with Al-Qaeda and other like-minded Islamist extremist groups? There is not a single iota of evidence that anything has changed about the Taliban. And right now it looks like we are right back on a path to get right back to September 10th, 2001. Maybe it'll happen during Biden's term. Maybe it'll happen towards some future presidency or another Islamist terrorist group operating out of Afghanistan launches an attack and kills Americans, and we're right back where we started again. Yeah, I don't know exactly what to uh, expect and how soon it's going to happen, but uh, I think there's going to be a lot of chaos in Afghanistan pretty quickly uh, after we leave, and that is not good. And I'm also very concerned about um, the people that helped us in Afghanistan and what's going to happen to them once we're not around to protect them. Doesn't mean we don't uh, have to... Uh, wrap things up or that it's necessarily a terrible decision, but uh, there are going to be consequences to this decision and some of them could be very ugly. All right, let's talk about uh, something far more comfortable than that, and that is the wonderful products at MyPillow, and specifically the pillows themselves. Uh, as I mentioned uh, a couple of times already this week, I got uh, my first MyPillow long before they were a sponsor. 
my wonderful mother-in-law gave it to me for Christmas or a birthday, I believe. And so I uh, tried it out and immediately I knew it was it was the pillow for me. Far more comfortable, uh, best for my neck, best for uh, my shoulders, uh, just a great rest. And now you can refresh the pillows of every room in your house because the premium my pillow is at its lowest price ever. Their current offer, for a limited time, you can get a queen-size premium my pillow for only $29.98. King pillows are just $5 more. The premium pillows never go flat, and they give you the best night's sleep every night. They're made in the United States. They have a 60-day money-back guarantee and a one-year limited warranty. Go to MyPillow.com and click on the radio listener's square. Enter the promo code MARTINI or call 800-874-0104. And while you're there, take advantage of the deep discounts on all MyPillow products, including the Giza Dream bed sheets and the new My Slippers. Get your premium MyPillow today for only $29.98, but only with our promo code MARTINI. So call 800-874-0104 or visit MyPillow.com today. All right, Jim, things are opening up as we head to our crazy martini. That's not the crazy thing. The crazy thing is how quickly people forget how authority and power obsessed their governors were uh, not that long ago. In fact, in some cases, days ago. So let's go out to California and the polling there. California's rebound from the COVID-19 crisis is complicating the drive to recall Governor Gavin Newsom with a strong majority of state voters now approving of his pandemic management and just 40% saying they would remove him, a new Public Policy Institute of California poll shows. Uh, The Democratic governor now enjoys majority approval of his job performance, 54%, 64%, Jim, support his handling of the pandemic, 57%. Uh, are likely to vote no on the recall. So at 40%, I mean, you're not that far above just the the GOP base probably in California. So, I mean, it wasn't that long ago that uh, a lot of Democrats and independents were piling on to the recall challenge here. But by the time this gets to the ballot, it might just be a a footnote because uh, his numbers right now are looking great, unfortunately. Indeed, Greg. And and I'm kind of left scratching my head because I'm very glad California's opening up the Folks who have businesses out there, parents who want to get their kids into schools like, you know, California had some of the most draconian restrictions in the country, uh, had some of the hardest economic uh, hardship in the whole country, uh, some of those sweeping and oftentimes just not common sense, uh, bizarre restrictions on their lives. They seem to be kept in place the longest and Californians were justifiably angry under the mentality of this is being done ad hoc and arbitrary and not in terms of following the science the science because in fact after a couple early peaks california did a pretty decent job for most of this year of getting it under control and so look when you have a business that's been shut down or operating at limited capacity you want to open up as quick as you can as much as you can and uh you know gavin newsom seemed to be the the primary obstacle to a great portion of that now gavin newsom can read a poll and i can't help but suspect that one of the reasons that the reopening process has accelerated in california is because gavin newsom thought this was going to cost him his political future but it is utterly bizarre to see californians at least if if this poll is accurate now you and i have pointed out a lot of polls were way off in 2020. At minimum, if you're a Republican, you can count on doing a couple of points better than the polls are suggesting on Election Day. So maybe we don't need to put that much. But boy, oh boy, this seems like a really fast shift compared to other polls we've seen not too long ago. And it's just kind of bizarre that everybody would be really mad about this. The stores reopened 
And then they forget about why they were angry. I mean, I think I think the French Laundry incident is a good reason to recall Gavin Newsom as much as any other one. You know, basically, if you're going to enact really strict rules on people, you have to live under those same rules too. But apparently, it sounds like the California electorate has the memory and the uh, ability to focus of a fruit fly, and they just aren't going to uh, to worry about this too much. They're they're not angry about it. They're enjoying life. I don't begrudge anybody enjoying life, but remember who put you through the hardship in the first place. But apparently that's too much to ask out in California. Yeah, and we've seen before that uh, people's opinions on recalls don't necessarily match up with uh, what they think of the actual politician. I remember when Scott Walker was fending off the recall in Wisconsin, uh, he fended off the recall pretty handily, even though uh, the, the split in the state was pretty close on what they thought of him as governor. And in this situation, I'm not shocked that a majority of uh, voters in a, in a deep blue state want to keep their Democratic governor. But the fact that a strong majority think he's doing a good job and nearly two-thirds believe he's uh, done a good job handling the pandemic is is, is absolutely staggering. Uh, real quick. Yeah, I mean, the best thing I can think of is that pe- people who say, are you approving of a job? It is now a synonym for, is he your guy or not? Yeah. You're very rarely going to see people saying, he's, you know, yeah, I voted for him. Yes, he got, but, you know, but no, you know, he's doing a, very rarely will people admit the guy they voted for is doing a bad job. Yeah, exactly. And I think there was a story out maybe in, in Roll Call today or, or somewhere that uh, showed that only 4% of uh, members of the House had their district go for the other party's presidential candidate. So ticket splitting uh, is becoming an endangered species. It's uh, fascinating to watch in a lot of different ways. Uh, real quick uh, before we go, uh, noting the passing of longtime Virginia Senator John Warner. He was uh, our senator for uh, a number of years. He obviously got elected uh, before either of us uh, came to the Commonwealth. He was elected in 1978 after serving as Secretary of the Navy. By most accounts, he was elected because uh, people were enthralled by his wife, Elizabeth Taylor, at the time. But uh, by the time he ran for re-election, shockingly, uh, they were divorced, uh, and he still uh, served uh, another uh, four terms. And so he was a big uh, national security hawk, served as chairman of the Senate Armed Services Committee, and uh, ultimately wasn't really a Republican at the end. I think he was kind of like Colin Powell. He'd come out with these strong pronouncements that he was supporting Democrats, and the media would be drooling all over it. But uh, in reality, he hadn't supported a Republican in a while. But uh, Jim, uh, John Warner, uh, distinguished career, long career anyway, uh, gone at the age of 94. Yeah, I mean, I've already seen several places this morning, and I mentioned at the end of today's Morning Jolt, um, the anecdote that uh, George Mitchell, the former Senate Majority Leader, Apparently sometime decades back, the Senate was going to was doing a filibuster. They're going to pull an all-nighter. They're bringing in the cots. And George Mitchell was pretty irritated. But he saw that, you know, John Warner was, you know, pulling it up and settling in and getting ready. And he said, you know, he goes home to Elizabeth Taylor and he's here and he's not complaining. I guess I should suck it up. And uh, yeah, I think that's I think if anybody had good reason to complain about having to work late and not go home. John Warner would have a good complaint. The other thing is that if you were in the Washington, D.C. area in 1996 or to Virginia, <laughs> Warner, who at that point was, you know, towards the tail end, but he's still, you know, the distinguished, the, the, you know, the, by that point, he'd become the kind of, he looked like the kind of guy you'd get to cast a Republican senator in a movie. <laughs> um, you know, authoritative, gray, a little crusty, but, you know. And uh, he was running against one of our current senators, Mark Warner. So the race was John Warner against Mark Warner. Mm-hmm. And more than a few people like, oh, my God, this is going to be the most confusing uh, race of all time. We have two people with the same name running against each other. So you saw a whole bunch of bumper stickers for Republicans that said John, not Mark. And then you saw a lot of Democrats with bumper stickers that said Mark, not John. 
And if you weren't paying attention to the news, just a boy, there's a lot of biblical study groups that are people are very active about here in, this, in, in uh, summer and fall of 1996. Yeah, so uh, John Warner defeated Mark Warner. And so since he lost, Warner then ran for governor five years later. And Senator Warner won in 2002. Senator Warner retired in 2008. And then the other Warner became the Senator Warner at, the, at that time. So if that's uh, clear, I hope it is. But uh, <laughs> we've had a lot of Warners in the Senate for this state for a long time. <laughs> Anyway, Jim, see you tomorrow. No, someday we should try other surnames. <laughs> Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Columbus, Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. Uh, thanks for uh, subscribing to the Three Martini Lunch podcast. Uh, and for those of you struggling on Apple Podcasts, they've done some updates recently that didn't go well for a lot of podcasts. And we're unfortunately one of them. But uh, we're being told that uh, that is coming back online. So Please be patient. There are other places to get it, including at uh, Ricochet and Spreaker and Spotify and that sort of thing. So uh, please uh, do look for it elsewhere, and hopefully Apple will be restored soon. Uh, also, uh, you can get us on those home devices. All you have to say is play 3 Martini Lunch Podcast. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter. He's at Jim Garrity. I'm at Dateline underscore DC. Have a great Wednesday, and please join us on Thursday for the next 3 Martini Lunch. The border crisis is getting worse, and so is big tech censorship. Hi, this is Sarah Carter. On The Sarah Carter Show, I explain the problems that are happening at our southern border that are a direct result of Biden administration policies. And I'm staying on top of the left in big tech, trying to stifle the freedom of speech for conservatives and anyone who dares to challenge their narrative. Join me as we take on these massive challenges that impact all of us. Subscribe to The Sarah Carter Show at Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.